only source of true delight whom I unseen adore Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more Oh that I might love thee more You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. If you all would, I'd encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with us to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. If you uh, would like to use the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, we'd encourage you to do so. Uh, it's on page 840 and 841 in that Bible. As you're turning there, I'll just mention briefly, we've been in the book of Romans for quite some time. Turn now to the book of Mark, and we see a story of the Lord Jesus, of his amazing power to heal, and of the faith of, uh, of two who were healed, or whose families experienced healing. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. This is God's word. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means... Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, 
and told them to give her something to eat. Brothers and sisters, this is God's Word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our Lord stands forever. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Thanks, Matt. I'm really glad that Matt studied Aramaic when he was in um, seminary because you know, I, I get that, that passage could be difficult there as it quotes Jesus' original words. Talitha kumai. Thanks, Matt. Well, let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer briefly and ask Him to uh, accompany us as we study His Word. Father in heaven, we, uh, as we just heard, the grass withers and the flower fades, but Your Word stands forever. Uh, we pray that You would empower it by Your Spirit so that it might open our hearts to believe and to trust You as our God. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. When was the last time that you were really afraid? When was the last time you had that moment where your palms got sweaty, your heart rate started to rise a little bit, you started to get a nervous twitch or whatever it is that uh, happens to you when uh, life begins to kind of press on you? Was it uh, the last time you had to speak in public? Was it during your most recent trip to the doctor's office to get those test results? Was it uh, during uh, the SAT, last time your kids came home late? So when you were going over to the side of the pulpit to get a drink because you feared speaking in public? <laughs> uh, was it uh, the last time your in-laws came into town before they got there? My, my wife's in-laws are actually here today, so... Um, she wasn't nervous. But was it uh, last time you took somebody out on a date or went on a date with somebody else? Uh, was it when you discovered your tax liability for this year that's due here in the next few weeks? Was it a difficult conversation that you had to have with your friend or your spouse or somebody, something you knew could get ugly and just the thought of it coming in the next few hours or the next few days would just eat you up and keep you up at night? I don't care how tough you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care how, um, how big and strong you think you are. We all know what it's like to be afraid of something, don't we? We know it from when we're little kids. And we know it all the way up until we're, we're older. We know that somehow, when we look out at the world, we know that the world we live in is not safe. That it's not safe. And the stories we're looking at today uh, clearly take place in that same unsafe world that we all know and experience every day. <clears throat> uh, and they concern people who are afraid. If you listen to, to the reading carefully, you heard the, this concept of fear come up twice. But uh, if you look back at chapter 4, uh, in, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's on the same page in the top left-hand corner. This takes place in the same section in Mark where uh, Jesus calms the storm and he asks his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In verse 40. And then in verse 33 of our own passage, he, uh, the woman we see comes in fear and trembling at the feet of Jesus. And then, of course, in verse 36 where Jesus turns to uh, Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, and says, Do not fear, only believe. But Mark's purpose here isn't, isn't simply to just show us how scary the world is. We already know that. 
And and His purpose isn't merely to just show us what happens when everyday people come into contact with fearful things. His purpose in these stories is to show us what happens when Jesus, whom He has identified as the Son of God in in the first verse of His Gospel, what happens when Jesus comes into contact with fearful things and fearful people. He shows us how people cower before the fearful things, but how Jesus shows tremendous ease and tremendous power over the forces that are hostile to us and that make us afraid. You see, for all of us, at some, at some level, in, in some way, we're, we're all fearful. We fear getting old. We fear what people think of us, if they, what people would think of us if they really knew us. We fear uh, being alone. We fear failure. We fear success. We fear being poor. We fear uh, being exposed. We fear, fear being out of control of our lives. And we fear dying in death. And I think if we're really honest, we fear what's on the other side of them. I think even for Christians, that, that could be a sneaking suspicion that is this really all it's, is this really all true? Is it really what it says it's, it, said it, it is on the other side of death? And the problem is that those fears, they, they tend to encompass us. They, they uh, consume us. And instead of having a, a peaceful trust in the midst of fear, we become manipulative. We try to control people. And we try to make the world feel safe again through our own actions. But the question I want to ask today is, how can we become people who, when we're facing these fearful things, how can we become a people who have trust, who have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of great fear? Well, let me tell you, it's not by just telling you to believe harder. I'm sure that's been tried with you before. I can't just say, hey, just believe more, believe more, believe more. No, we need a fresh picture of who God is. We need a fresh picture of who Jesus is and what God has revealed to us in Christ if we're going to be people who are confident and who trust in Him. And that's exactly what we get in this story today. So as we go forward, I want to notice three characteristics about Jesus that Mark reveals to us that increase our ability to trust in Him. The first is uh, Jesus' compassion demands our faith. Jesus' compassion demands our faith. The second is Jesus' power over sickness demands our faith. And then finally, Jesus' power over death demands our faith. So let's look at those three. The first is, in the face of fear, Jesus' compassion demands that we trust him. It demands our faith. Where do we see Jesus' compassion in this story? Well, it begins by him returning to Capernaum, which is the place where he did most of his miracles. And uh, on the shore right there of the Sea of Galilee, this big crowd comes to him. And out of the crowd comes a man named Jairus. Now, it's significant that we know his name. Mark usually doesn't tell us the names of people, but he singles his name out because he was an important person in the city. People would have likely known who he was. And he tells, <clears throat> excuse me, he tells us that he was the, uh, the ruler of the synagogue. Or, sorry, one of the rulers of the synagogue. And uh, that would have made him an important person in society as well. But despite his importance, despite his stature in the community, he comes to Jesus as a desperate man. He knows that his daughter is about to die. And so he comes, and it says he falls down on his knees at the feet of Jesus. 
And this would be like seeing your pastor in his suit falling down in the dust before someone and saying, please help me. Or like a, somebody, some powerful person, that we, a politician or somebody who's really important, just humbling themselves before another person and saying, please come help me. It seems pretty undignified, doesn't it? But notice what Jesus does. The simple, simple phrase in verse 24, and he went with him. He goes with him. But on his way to heal this girl who's moments away from death, what happens? Jesus gets interrupted. And by whom? Who, who interrupts him? Well, it's a woman. And unlike Jairus, we don't know her name. Unlike Jairus, we don't know her position. But what we do know is that she is suffering greatly. Look, Mark piles up four relative clauses, or clauses that begin with who, uh, to tell us about this woman. It was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, beginning in verse 25, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and who had spent all that she had, and was no better, but was rather worse. She was desperate as well. And what's sort of behind the scenes here in this is that uh, she, her condition would have affected the way that she was perceived in the community. Because any uh, discharge, according to the Old Testament, made you ceremonially unclean. And so this woman could not go to worship, and she could not touch anyone. Because anything she touched or any person she touched would also be considered ceremonially unclean, and then you have to go through the whole rigmarole of washing and everything like that. So this woman had likely not touched anyone for 12 years. And she had spent all of her money on many doctors. But even though Jesus is on his way to something important, he's on on his way to heal someone who's about to die, he stops to consider this woman. He stops to heal this woman. And I want to look at the healing in detail in just a minute, but at this point I just want us to notice Jesus' compassion for both of these people. His compassion isn't limited to one sector of the population, those who are important or those who are poor. He, He takes compassion on all. And not only that, he's not like us who get busy with things and we, and we kind of tend to ignore people around us when we're, on a, when we're on a mission, don't we? I've got important things to do. I can't handle interruptions in my day. But notice the ease with which Jesus moves through the crowd and stops to heal this woman without worrying about, about this, this girl who's about to die. Well, how does this apply to us? How does Jesus' compassion towards those who are needy affect us? Well, the first is that we see that Christianity is, is for the weak and for the broken. My, my two brothers actually worked for this same guy in Australia. Sounds like a real piece of work. One of my brothers is actually back from Australia, and he was telling us the other night, he's here with us this morning, he was telling us this weekend, how uh, even on the first days on the job, the boss would just lay into him for not knowing what he was doing. Anytime he showed any sign of not knowing uh, what to do because it was his first day or whatever, the boss would just lay into him and, and, and berate him, go after him. It, and it appears that the ideal employee in this guy's mind was someone who knew everything that he was supposed to do from the get-go, who uh, 
was, who didn't need any training, who didn't need any help, who didn't need any guidance, and, of course, whom he could pay an entry-level salary and uh, wash his hands of it. But I think that we often view our Christian life that way, don't we? Sure, at the beginning, we're needy. We, we need God. We need forgiveness. We need redemption. But isn't, doesn't this idea kind of creep in that as we grow in the Christian life, we somehow tend to need God less than we did at the beginning? After all, we grow in sanctification. We get holier, and so therefore, we don't need God as much. But I want you to see that Jesus' compassion is shown towards those who are weak, who, those who are needy. It's not those around the crowd, in the crowd who are self-sufficient and who don't need God that Jesus points out and comes to, but it's those who are broken, those who are sick, and those who are defiled, those who need guidance and training. And some of you may be thinking, well, that's great. You know, I, I don't really see myself as that kind of a person. I see myself as pretty, you know, I, I've got life together. It's kind of clicking for me. And so Christianity may not be for me. But another thing that Mark is doing in this passage is showing us the real condition of our soul. He's showing us that as this man falls down on his knees in front of Jesus, and as this woman with no money and no way to help herself, that is who you really are. There are two kinds of people in the world, those who are desperate and know it, and those who are desperate and don't know it yet. And so I, I encourage you to see your, your own, a picture of your own soul in these people. And the second thing that it shows us is that our trials are not trivial to God. Our, sometimes we suffer and we play the comparison game, don't we? Uh, I'm suffering, but I can always find somebody who's suffering worse than me, right? And we think, God may have his hands full with other people. But notice that Jesus, when he's on his way to heal this, this sick girl... And the woman interrupts and he doesn't say, I mean, you've dealt with this for the last 12 years. Can you wait 30 minutes while I go heal this other girl girl who's about to die? No, he stops to heal her and to to have compassion on her and and to take time to be with her. Your trials are not trivial to God, no matter what they are. So his compassion demands that we trust him, no matter what it is that we're facing and we're afraid of. Okay, well, while it's, while it's important to know that Jesus is compassionate, it's not enough, is it? I know a lot of compassionate people in this world, but they're not the kind of people that I would entrust my soul to. And I'm sure you know a lot of compassionate people that you say they're really nice and they really care about me, but I'm not sure that they have the ability to do what they promised to do. And so it's not enough to know that Jesus is compassionate. It's, it's enough, we need to know that Jesus is also powerful to do what he's come to do. And Mark, in fact, shows us that. And the first thing he shows us is that Jesus' power over sickness demands that we trust him. It demands our faith in him. Notice again the woman in the story. All of these things that that she had done, she'd suffered much under many physicians. She spent all of her money, and she had uh, grown worse instead of better. But she'd heard the reports about Jesus, it says. And so she goes to him, and she says, if I just touch his garment then I'll be made well. And I want you to notice in verse 29 how Mark describes this healing. She comes, she touches his garment, and what? Immediately, the flow of blood dries up. Immediately. 
Contrast that with 12 years, all of my money, all the doctors in Capernaum, and everything that I could possibly do to to get rid of my disease. And guess what? Immediately, as, as soon as she touches Jesus, it's as though Jesus accidentally heals her. Now, of course, I'm not saying that it was an accident. God, of course, sovereignly disposes his mercy. It's not that she snatched it out of God's hand. But I want you to notice how Mark puts these side by side. The utter helplessness of human ability and and simply the effortless power of the Son of God who, as it it appears, heals this woman without without even trying to. And notice that this power demands a response. Now, look in verses 30 through 34. Uh, this woman is healed, and Jesus, uh, we have this curious phrase, that he, perceiving in himself that, uh, that power had gone out from him, immediately turned the crowd, and he said, Who touched me? And of course, the disciples, typically dense, uh, say, What do you mean, who touched you? What, who didn't touch you in this crowd? Everybody's around you. But, of course, Jesus, he doesn't even respond to their question. He just keeps looking for this woman. And I want to ask, why does Jesus take the time to stop and speak to this woman? I mean, he's already healed her, right? He could have already known, well, there's, there went some power, so let's just keep going. we got things to do. But, but why does he stop and, and say, who touched me? Why does he look for her? Well, I think the answer is that he, he, there may have been some superstition in this woman's view that she may have thought going away from this interaction without talking to Jesus that, that it was really her touching him that had caused her healing. And Jesus wants to make sure that she doesn't go away thinking that. She, he wants to make sure that she knows that, that it is her faith that has made her well. Notice... Um, he, he says, who, who did it? And she, of course, is terrified to come forward because she would have had to admit that she had defiled all of these people she's touched and defiled even Jesus, whom she had touched. But she comes forward anyway. And notice her words, notice Jesus' words to her. Daughter. Daughter. Perhaps even to an older woman. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Your faith has made you well. Now, I, I think living in Dallas, Fort Worth, sorry, this isn't Dallas. I don't want to offend people. Ben's shaking his head like, no, it isn't. Um, living in Dallas, Fort Worth, I think we have to ask the question, if we have enough faith, does that mean that God will heal us of our sicknesses? Is that what Jesus is teaching here, that all we have to do is believe hard and he's going to heal us of our sicknesses? Well, the, the short answer is no, and uh, here's why. First of all, faith is, is not some bargaining chip that we use with God. It's not like, I, I believe, and therefore now God owes me something. No, faith is, is an empty hand. It's saying, God, please, please help me according to your mercy and according to your will. It is trust that God will do the right thing no matter what, even if that means not healing my sickness. Um, but the second reason is because Jesus shows that uh, throughout his ministry, healing is not his top priority. Notice that after he heals this girl, he, he tries to keep it quiet. He says, I don't want people to know about this. 
That's kind of, it seems odd to us. But if we look back in chapter 2, um, Jesus heals a paralytic. And he says, I heal you so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. And so Jesus shows his power over sickness to show us that he has authority to do even better than heal us of our sicknesses. He has the authority to forgive us of our sins. He has the authority to renew us spiritually. Well, what does this, what does this mean to us? How does this apply to us? Well, think about the last time that you were sick. If you're anything like me, um, you're a baby when you're sick. <laughs> I, when I get sick, I become the... I, I complain, I whine, I am uh, just at death's door. And to my, to my wife's uh, great frustration, I uh, become this, this child that she has to wait on all the time. And in fact, this past Christmas, I got so sick that I was sleeping in the garage at her, uh, at her parents' house. It's, it's finished, by the way. It's not like a garage garage. Um, and, and was just uh, laid up for three or four days. But, I, but I'm known to kind of milk, th- milk the sickness for all it's worth and you know, get the extra service. And she had to put an end to that uh, pretty quickly this, this, this past Christmas. But uh, what happens to you when you're sick? Do you, are you like me and you, and you complain? Or do you get angry and bitter at the inconvenience? Do you uh, deny, re- de- deny the reality, say, hey, there's nothing wrong, just kind of go on with life as normal? Do you uh, get afraid? And like this woman, perhaps, spend all of your resources, all of your power, looking for doctor after doctor after doctor and spending money dollar after dollar after dollar saying, this is the big one, I've got to get healing. Do you use your sickness to to avoid responsibilities at home? I'm sick, so I can't do the things that that God's called me to do and then just kind of turn and indulge in things like TV or movies or the things that that you really love to do. You see, sickness, we have a tendency to just kind of brush over it, see it as an inconvenience in our life, and move on. But it has a powerful way of showing us who we really are. It has a powerful way of showing us what we really trust and whom we really rely on. Because uh, we find out when we're sick that we really rely on our own physical strength so much. But it's in those moments, friends, that I want to encourage you to, to let your sickness expose who you are. Let it expose those parts of yourself that you don't think about when you're well. And let the Lord use it as a way of humbling you, reminding you your physical strength is severely limited. But my power, God says, is sufficient in your weakness. Will God heal you when you believe and when you trust Him? Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe he won't. But will God powerfully work in your life when you trust him in the midst of your weakness? Will he powerfully work in your life to renew you and and work his purposes in your life? Absolutely. You better believe it. His power is greater than any sickness that we can face. Okay. So Jesus' power over sickness demands that we trust him. His power over our sickness demands that we trust him. But we have to recognize that sickness is merely a symptom 
and is merely a foreshadowing of a reality that is far more daunting, a reality that is far more universal, and a reality that is far scarier than the common cold, or far scarier than even cancer. And that's death. Even if you manage to avoid getting seriously ill your whole life, you still have to face death. 100% of people in this room. That's a statistic you can count on. And it is, without a doubt, the greatest fear-inducing phenomenon that we face as human beings. It is the greatest thing that will, that will shake us and, and, discuss, and show who we really are. And in fact, it's, it's when these people face death in, the, in these stories that, they, that you really see the wheels start to come off of life, when you really know what fear is. And friends, Jesus shows us that it's not just over sickness that his power extends. It's over death itself that Jesus has power and authority and dominion. Let's go back to our story. While Jesus is still speaking to this woman, while he's still saying, your faith has made you well, Jairus gets the news that he's been dreading. Your daughter is dead, the messengers say. Imagine getting that news. You've come to Jesus and said, my daughter is sick, please help me. And he stops on the road to help someone else who's been dealing with an affliction for 12 years, and in the meantime, your daughter dies. And apparently the messengers from the, from the uh, house thought, well, I guess that's it. Notice what they say. Why trouble the teacher any further? Can you hear the assumption behind their question? Why should we bother Jesus anymore? He obviously doesn't have anything else to do. Death is too much. And notice the, the response of those when Jesus comes into the house and he says, Why are you weeping? Why are you, why are you uh, making all this commotion? She's not dead, but she's asleep. To indicate the, give us, a, give us a hint of what he's about to do. Notice what people do. They laugh at him. Do you think you have a power to reverse death, Jesus? But God's power is, uh, according to these people, believed to be limited to what our circumstances require. God's power is limited to what we think he can do. But I I want us to notice how Jesus responds to this. Look at verse 36. He says to Jairus, Well, first of all, it says, but overhearing what they said, but if you notice in in your Bibles, uh, many of them have a footnote down to the bottom there that says, or ignoring. In fact, I think that's a better way of seeing what Jesus is doing here. He hears them say, why trouble the teacher any further? He doesn't have any power over death, and he ignores what they say. He doesn't grace it with a response, and he says, he turns his attention to Jairus, and he says, don't be afraid. Only believe. Notice that Jesus says this before he even heals his daughter. He wants Jairus, as he looks, as he thinks about his daughter's death, to turn his eyes away from what his circumstances are telling him, which is God doesn't care about you. God doesn't care about your family. God doesn't have power over death. 
and to turn his eyes to Jesus. To turn his eyes away from his circumstances to focus on Jesus. Not Jesus the miracle worker, not Jesus the great teacher, not Jesus the guru on this or that, but Jesus the Son of God who has power over death. That's the Jesus he wants him to see. And then Jesus, in his mercy, shows him that his faith is not founded on sand. That his faith can that his faith is uh, anchored in a reliable source when he goes into his house and takes his girl by the hand and raises her from the dead. And notice again, 40, verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began to walk. Okay, what does this mean for us? What relevance does this 2,000-year-old miracle have for us in Fort Worth, Texas, March 2010? Well, death, as we've already said, is, is as much a reality as it was for Jairus and his family. And it's just as ugly and it's just as painful as it was then. And the reason why that is, the reason our connection to them is, is not because death is just kind of this normal part of life, that death is just a part of the circle of the way we experience things and it's just a natural course. But the reason why death is still a reality for us today is because death is, is not something natural. It's, it's a response of God to us for our rebellion and our sin. Death is the penalty that God appended to rebellion from Him. Death is the consequence of our disobedience. And death, friends, is that one thing that everyone uses to say, I can't believe in God. How many times have you heard someone say, or how many times have you said yourself, I could not believe in a God who let this happen, who would allow a world with death in it. And if you haven't said those very words, there, there are Christian versions of that, aren't there? I, I could not possibly believe or trust a God who would allow this to happen in my life, who would allow this to happen to my family members, who would allow me to get this or, or even approach death. But friends, I want you to notice that those objections have something in common. They have, they have this in common. They assume that God is somehow out there and up there, unconcerned, uninvolved with the reality of death that faces us every day. God doesn't know how it is. He doesn't know what this world's like. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. That's not the Christian God. The Christian God is found in the face of Jesus Christ, who comes into this world. The infinite God became finite in the person of Jesus Christ, and he faced death face on. And not only that, but he submitted himself to it and let God crush him in death so that we wouldn't have to experience the wrath of God for our sins. Friends, this, this death and resurrection of this girl is merely a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that would come at the end of this book. The, the, the real death and resur- resurrection. And when Jesus touched this ceremonially defiled woman and made her clean, when Jesus touched this dead girl and made her alive, he was showing us what was going to happen on the cross. 
He was showing us that great exchange that, was go- that took place there on the cross. Our impurity exchanged for His purity. Our rebellion exchanged for His perfect obedience and His submission. And ultimately, friends, our death that we, des- we deserve to die exchanged for His indestructible life. That's how Jesus shows his power over death, and that's how Jesus conquers it. And so he tells us, friends, he declares to us that while death is still a reality for us, death is still something we have to face, death is still something that is going to hurt and is going to be painful. But Jesus' death and resurrection says, death no longer has the last word in the lives of those who trust in Jesus. It's not the last word in your life. If you're a Christian, friend, this is of great comfort because we don't have to face death with fear anymore. But it's also a challenge to us because it challenges us to believe God, to trust God when when the wheels come off of our life and when we're afraid. You're going to face fearful things. God is not going to deliver you from them all. In fact, Every one of us in this room right now is dealing with some degree of it right now. But the fact that Jesus is compassionate, the fact that Jesus has power over sickness and power over death encourages us to trust him. The fact that he has defeated death and and it therefore will have no sting ultimately for us for eternity encourages us to trust him. And so, friends, trust in Jesus. Turn your eyes, like Jairus, away from your circumstances that proclaim to you that God doesn't care about you. And look to Jesus and know that he does. And friends, if you're you're not a Christian this morning, I, I encourage you to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Consider his compassion towards those who are sick and needy. Consider his power over any over over all the hostile forces that face us. And consider that he demonstrated his power over death by being the only person to ever die and rise from the grave. You can trust every word that he says. And so place your trust in him. Friends, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for the magnificent name and work of Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate who came into this world to take on our flesh and to suffer the death that we deserved, to remove the sting of death from threatening our lives. And Lord, we pray that as we face the remnants of sin in this world, as we face the remnants of sin in our own hearts, as we face death itself, which we know we cannot escape, that you would help us to look to Jesus who defeated it, that you would encourage our faith in him by revealing to us again and again his compassion and his, and his victory over death, that we might face it with confidence, even though we may be afraid. Teach us that being afraid is not sinful, but that uh, when we are afraid, trusting in you is what you want us to do trusting in you even when we don't know the future. And so, Father, uh, 
renew us by your word and by your spirit uh, with these words. For your own glory, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?